purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Marion Nessel. Nessel is a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University writes the column Food Matters for the San Francisco Chronicle, and is the author of many books, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, and Safe Food, the Politics of Food Safety. Writing in Forbes, Michael Pollan ranked her as the second most powerful foodie in America, and New York Times food columnist Mark Bittman ranked Marion Nessel number one in his list of foodies to be thankful for. Marian Nessel's here today on Health Watch to talk about her new co-authored book called Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Welcome back to Health Watch, Marian Nessel. Oh, glad to be here. So so tell us why you decided to uh, write a book and tackle the calorie. Well, actually, it was an invitation from my editor at University of California Press, who had been hearing a lot of questions about calories and thought, ah, it's time for a book on one. And I thought it was just a wonderful idea because the two biggest public health nutrition problems in the world have to do with calories. That's either too little or too much. Uh, Obesity and starvation, two sides of the calorie coin, if you were. Um, And also, the public is demonstrably confused about calories. And I knew that from my own experience and also from doing the movie Supersize Me. Um, It's really hard for people to understand, and they can't be seen, smelled, or tasted. And and is it partly the confusion come from a a difficulty in, in a layman's version of a definition for a calorie? Well, the definition absolutely doesn't help. Uh, First of all, the definition is hugely scientific, and you have to be a chemist to understand it. It's the amount of energy needed. Uh, I'm just going to talk about the calories on food labels, and that's an issue in itself. It's the amount of energy needed to raise a kilogram of water by one degree centigrade under certain conditions of uh, pressure and temperature. I mean, nobody can understand that. Uh, And the other part... Part of it is that a chemist's calorie is a thousand times smaller than the calorie that's on a food label, and yet if you sound them, they sound exactly the same. They're both calories. So the same word stands for one thing and something that's a thousand times larger. No wonder people are confused. Well, one of the things that I really came away with in reading uh, Why Calories Count was a sense that almost by definition, uh, studies around about diet are both difficult and deeply flawed, and that part of the confusion may be due to the fact that we're generating uh, results that can be interpreted in multiple ways and may not have a lot of validity in the real world. C- can you talk about why that might be the case? Ah, uh, that's nutrition science in action. I mean, this has to do with the fact that calories are very difficult to measure either in food or in the body. It can be done, but it requires expensive and complicated equipment Um, a great deal of time, and they're expensive to do. Very, very few studies have been done that that way. The studies that have measured calories in food and calories in the body often give very different results than studies that are based on people's reporting of the number of calories they eat or the amount of food they eat or how active they are. 
uh, or how much food they think they're eating. All of those are deeply flawed measures. And that makes the interpretation of the studies extremely difficult to do. People don't report what they eat very accurately, alas. And if I remember correctly, sometimes when they do those studies, say, head-to-head study of the Zone versus Ornish versus Atkins, we find afterwards that all of them complained that the people who were supposed to be in their own cohort were not eating the way that the person who made the diet was hoping they would be eating. So like the Atkins people are saying, well, the diet doesn't count because they weren't, they were eating too much carbohydrates. And the Ornish people are saying, well, that that study doesn't count because they're eating too much fat because there isn't a lot of ability to uh, regulate compliance in the studies. Yeah, humans are not experimental animals. You can't take large numbers of humans and put them in jail and do experiments on them, changing their diet. Although those studies were done years and years ago, and those are the studies that have very, very different results than the kinds of things than you have with what are called free-living study subjects, that is, people who are out and about and doing whatever it is they're doing, going about their daily business, supposedly following a diet. Extreme diets are very difficult to follow. Extreme diets of one kind or another, either low carbohydrate or low fat or whatever they are, they're very, very hard to stick to for very uh, long periods of time. And another sort of great revelation of looking at the studies is that many studies show very impressive results at six months. But the longer they run the studies, the more the groups come together and look the same. Um, So unless a study is run for several years, it's really pretty meaningless. Well, it was fascinating uh, in your book to the section, Are All Calories Created Equal?, where you're asking the question, does it matter ultimately for weight loss whether or not um, people are eating more or less protein, more or less carbohydrates versus just simply more or less calories? Can can you uh, walk us through that a little bit? Sure. I mean, this is the perfect example of what I was talking about. If you put people in a hospital metabolic ward and lock them in and make sure nobody ever brings them food and they're not going out and getting food, but they're in this ward, they're only eating exactly what they're given. Um, And you develop a diet that has fewer calories in it than they need to maintain weight. They're going to lose weight no matter what the protein, fat, and carbohydrate composition of that diet is, they will lose weight at exactly the same rate. And the rate of weight loss will depend on the calorie deficit that's established. If, however, you do studies of varying the protein, fat, and actually you can't vary the protein very much because protein is very low in foods and it's pretty high. It's pretty hard to develop a significantly greater protein uh, intake, it usually runs between 15 and 20 percent, and it's pretty hard to do it any other way. So the only thing that really varies is, pro- is fat and carbohydrate. And there, if you compare the two, the people who are eating the higher fat diets have a little easier time with satiety. They don't feel as hungry. Um, and uh, they may not complain as much, although they don't stick to the diet any longer than the people who are on the high-carbohydrate ones. Um, But they will lose weight at a faster rate at the beginning, particularly because they're losing a lot of water. Uh, But if you run the study long enough, the groups converge, 
and there doesn't seem to be much different. And I know that's contrary to a lot of what's in the press because there are people who just swear by low-carbohydrate diets, and I'm sure they work for some people. Yes, we've had Gary Taubes, who you talk about uh, in your book, uh, the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, on before. And uh, so you would you would say that really what you're seeing when somebody goes on his sort of diet, a very highly restricted carbohydrate, low carbohydrate diet, that they're really seeing um, more benefits in the front end, but in the long term, probably not any more benefits than someone on a low fat diet. Well, if they're reducing calories, they'll lose weight. Uh, What I think uh, those studies cannot distinguish is whether the weight loss is due to the low carbohydrate or the reduction in calories because the calories aren't measured. So so coming back to another study flaw. Yeah, it's impossible to tell. I think it's calories, and then if they measured calories, they would show that those people who reduced calorie intake below expenditure lost the most weight and kept it off uh, for the longest time. It's very, very difficult to argue with the idea that people would be healthier if they ate less sugar. And I'm certainly not going to argue that. Um, I tell people who are overweight, the first thing they ought to do is to cut down on sugary soft drinks. Um, as a weight loss measure, uh, because those are calories that aren't very useful, um, and they may derange metabolism in various ways. I think the Taubes' approach is to single out uh, the relationship of carbohydrate intake and what that does to insulin as the single cause of obesity. I think it's a cause, but I don't think it's the only one. Um, And the reason I think that is that in reviewing the evidence on control of body weight, hunger, and satiety, there are probably a hundred different factors uh, in the body, physiological factors, hormones, and other kinds of things that are involved in weight regulation. And it's pretty hard to boil it down to just one. The system looks as if it's incredibly redundant. And what I mean by that is if there's a failure in one component, then the others all come in because the whole thing is set up to try to get people to maintain their body weight and eat more, not less. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today with Marian Nessel, the co-author of Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number is 503-231-8187. One question I had, Marian, was if, if composition of the diet it, um, it does not play a, a significant role in, in weight loss per se, it, it's really the calories of the diet. Why is it oh, that let me let me back up just one second. Sure. It may play a significant role in a different way. It may make people feel fuller and not be so hungry. That's to a good eat point. a diet that has more fat in it. Um, well I was gonna ask it, actually the opposite is why my question was why would vegans, for instance, have such a lower incidence of obesity than omnivores? If, well they're not eating as much. They're not eating as many calories. Uh, Vegetarian diets in general and vegan diets in particular uh, are based on plant foods. Plant foods have fewer calories than uh, foods from animal sources. They're not eating a lot of junk food um, because they're being careful about maintaining no animal products in what they're eating. And they're eating fewer calories. I don't think that's very complicated. 
so, and they're eating a much healthier diet as as well. Because there are two things you have to worry about: calories are involved in in weight, um, and you can get people to lose weight by reducing their calories, no matter what they're eating. But if you want to eat healthfully and if you want to prevent chronic diseases and other kinds of things, you want to be eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're healthy. Sure. I was also just thinking uh, maybe the the people who are called muffin vegans, the ones who don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, um, maybe they're not as uh, skinny as the uh, healthy vegans, but I'm sure that's never been studied. Um, One one of the things that I thought was also interesting was your differentiation of – calories in the body versus calories in the lab and that there is some difference between um, how much something has a calorie um, in a lab versus what happens when it actually is absorbed in our body. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, all of this work was done by Wilbur Atwater in the late 1800s. Um, we've known about measurements of calories forever and ever and ever. Um, and what, what Atwater did, and he was drawing on the work of others uh, in the 1890s, was to place various kinds of foods in what are called bomb calorimeters, which are devices that burn the food to completion uh, in the presence of oxygen, surrounded by a water bath and you can measure the heat given off by the change in temperature of the surrounding water and the calories that are in food burned that way um have to be corrected. Uh, I've said that it works exactly the same way in the body, except that you have to correct the calories in food for the parts of foods that are not digested. Um, and that are excreted in feces, and then you have to make further corrections later on for the differential rate of heat that's given off. But all of this was measured ages and ages and ages ago, and one of the really interesting things about doing the research for this book was to find out how well Atwater's work has held up over the years, although there have been many, many attempts to change it, his figures, the Atwater values of four calories per gram of protein and carbohydrate and nine for fat to have held up and, or, and seven for alcohol have held up for hundred more than a hundred years now uh, with very, very little change. They're a good approximation. He never thought that they were perfect numbers and he was well aware that there were variations in um, the calories that are in foods, but he thought they were good enough for most purposes, and everybody else thinks so too, even now. So how much does uh, processing of food, say taking a, a brown rice kernel and making it into white rice flour, for instance, or cooking a grain or a plant versus eating it raw, how much does that change the amount of calories that we end up absorbing? Well, it depends completely on what the food is. Um, if you're eating meat, it doesn't matter whether it's cooked or raw. The calories are roughly the same. Uh, with plant foods that have a lot of fiber, um, if you cook the foods and soften them, it's possible that more of the carbohydrates will be digested, and therefore you'll get more calories out of them. But these differences are really quite small. Um, the main uh, factor that bears on how many calories people are eating is how much they're eating and how big the portions are. So so you mentioned uh, also in, in Why Calories Count, the book Catching Fire by the anthropologist Richard Rangham. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was something very fascinating in his book 
about the studies that have been done in Germany around people who are on raw food diets. Are, are you familiar with those? Not completely, although I've read pieces of his book and I have a general idea of what he's after. And I think he's right about a lot of what he says. Well, I was curious your thoughts on this because there was there were studies, some of them up to 500 people, and they followed people on a on a raw food diet for up to four years and either a 70% amount raw food up to 95% raw food. And they found that the more raw food the people ate, the more difficult they had uh, time maintaining a normal weight, so much so that uh, a lot of the women stopped menstruating because they were losing so much weight. And well, I was curious lost, lost. I was curious oh, if that was well, inefficient digestion. Well, some of it is inefficient digestion. Some of it is the food doesn't taste all that great, so they're not eating all that much. Um, and some of it is it just doesn't have very m- many calories. I mean, they're unlikely to be eating raw meat and um, raw chicken and raw fish and other kinds of things that have a lot of oil in them or fats in them that would be high in calories. Uh, the chances are they're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables um, and other kinds of things that can be prepared in a raw way. It's just hard to eat a lot. If 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 It's hard to overeat if what you're eating needs a lot of chewing and doesn't taste very good and has a huge volume of water, which vegetables do. So, so I would say calories easily account for, for much of that. Uh, why they for why they would be losing weight because those are not high calorie foods. They're hard to eat and there's a lot of fiber in them, which doesn't have any calories. It doesn't have many. So uh, when we when we hear advice from people around losing weight, uh, we often hear eat less, move more, and, and certainly moving more has all sorts of health benefits. But in, in Why Calories Count, you really talk about how um, moving more isn't really the answer to losing weight as much as eating less is. Can Can you parse that out a little bit? Oh, yeah, easily. It's really sad. I mean, you think, gee, if you just could be a little bit more active, it would take care of it. But it takes an enormous amount of activity to work off calories. And the best example I can think of is walking off the calories in a 20-ounce soda. It takes three miles to do that of walking if on average um, and in fact the ballpark figure is that it takes about a hundred calories a mile to um, w- to walk off calories or to run off calories it's about a hundred calories a mile if you're a small person it's you gotta go further and if you're a large person you'll get it, it'll take less but on average somewhere in the order of let's say 70 to 200 calories and that doesn't um, take per, into account the increase in hunger you might have from the exercise, that does it? That's right. <laughs> Working up an appetite. No, that's not going to work. Um, so if, it, you know, be, and it's, it's, there's very little evidence that over the last 20 or 30 years, rates of physical activity have changed very much. In fact, most of the studies that have been done show either no change at all or even a little increase in physical activity. I don't know how good those are, and I don't know whether to believe them or not. But there's no question at all that people are eating more. And there, there are two or three different data sets that bear on that and show that people report eating more. Measurements of, pe- of people's calorie intake show that they're eating more. And the number of calories in the food supply has increased greatly over this time period. Um, and 
and portions have gotten larger. I think portion size alone is a sufficient explanation for why people are gaining weight. Larger portions have more calories. I was very fascinated about the experiment you did at a restaurant with risotto with some food experts. That um, even food experts, when they're asked to uh, guesstimate around calories in a specific meal, are way off. Yeah, I mean, this was an example of how to humiliate nutritionists in public. Um, and I and I'm one of my doctoral students and some other people agreed to have lunch with a reporter for the New York Times who took us to a really nice Italian restaurant, ordered everything on the menu, had us taste it, and estimate the amount of fat and calories in it. And, I mean, I knew I couldn't do it. I told her before we went that it was impossible to do that because you're not in the kitchen with the chef. Um, but the one, and I don't remember the exact details, but the one that stuck with me was a very small lunch-sized portion of risotto was 1,200 calories and four ounces of fat. Um, and I was really shocked by that, and I was talking to some chefs who said, if you knew anything about what went on in a kitchen, you would know how risotto was made. It's steeped in olive oil, and um, handfuls of butter go into it, and then it's topped off with cheese. And it so, tastes great. Course, and it tastes <laughs> wonderful. It's just delicious. Um, so it was, it's impossible for anybody to guess. And this has also been shown. My doctoral student, Lee Young, showed this uh, when she went out to a meeting of the American Dietetic Association and put some meals out and had them guess. And like everybody else in the world, um, these trained dietitians underestimated the number of calories by 30 to 40%. Everybody does. So in the in this climate where we know that we need to do calorie restriction to to lose weight and then even as we start to lose weight our metabolism slows down so we might have to cut back calories more as we as we lose and doing so in in this uh, climate of a food market that's telling us to eat more all the time what are some of the things that you think on a political level people can do to advocate for um means to make it easier for people to to lose weight in the U.S.? Well, first of, all, pe- first of all, people have to figure out a way to manage the food environment, a way that works for them. And by the food environment, I mean the fact that food is absolutely everywhere and that it has become socially acceptable to eat food anywhere, any time of day, in very, very large portions. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of make a joke of it that I w- if I had one thing that I could teach the American public, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Everybody laughs when I say that, and I can hardly say it with a straight face. But it's not intuitively obvious. And if you're confronted with a big portion of food, with which people who eat out are all the time, you're going to eat more for, from, from that portion, particularly if it tastes good, and you're going to underestimate what you're eating by a much larger amount. So people have to figure out how to deal with it. There's food everywhere. I love to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? Um, That's a good one. (laughs) You know, cafes are in bookstores. Cafes are in libraries. Um, In New York City, where I live, all of the drugstores have turned into grocery stores overnight. Um, They're just oozing food. Um, you know, there's food in clothing stores. There's food in business supply stores. You can't get away from it. You have to learn how to manage it. 
And do you think the movement to require uh, restaurants and other businesses to have calorie labeling is a, is an effective part of that? Well, I don't know how effective it is. You know, we've had calorie labeling in, in fast food places in New York City since 2008. And quite a number of studies have looked at whether it has changed uh, purchase patterns among customers in those places and those studies generally show that it isn't having any um, isn't having much of an effect but i know that it affects my behavior i have anecdotal uh, evidence from an n of one a sample <laughs> of one it certainly affects my behavior um, I go into some of these places and I think I'll have a muffin and I look and see that the muffin is five or 600 calories and I think twice about having it or if I am going to have it, I'm going to cut it in half and give half of it away. Um, there's a cookie at one of the places around here that's 670 calories. Yeah, that's you know, pretty amazing. You know, and the other, the really depressing Thing that I found out in this, in doing the research for this book, I mean, the part that just brings me to tears is what happens to you when you get older. You can't eat anything because your metabolism drops so so far down. It's such a dirty trick. And and not only when you get older, as you start to lose weight, you have to eat less as well. Is that true? Well, because as your metabolism you slows down. You know, even if you're not losing weight, and you're, but your proportion of fatty tissue and muscle tissue changes, uh, if, you ha- if you have more fat and less muscle, you're going to need fewer calories. If you're less active, you're going to need fewer calories. And when my friends complain, and all of us do, that we just can't eat anything without gaining weight, it's true. And, and on the bright side, you do offer some some tactics like for instance the um, not getting calories from your drinks can have a particularly beneficial effect you know as i said it's the first thing that i advise if you if you're trying to lose weight um you you drop the sugary drinks as quickly as you can you just don't have them take them away bye-bye um i think cutting down on carbohydrates is a really good way to do it or cutting down on sugars in general makes perfect sense to me um, because it's a really great way to cut calories and it's a healthy way. And, and finally, maybe we can end with your thoughts on um, your section on calorie restriction and, and prolonged life. Is there any upside to, as we age, eating less to keep our weight down in terms of longevity? Well, I think there's an upside to keeping a healthy body weight because the studies in the United States that have looked at Americans um, in, in terms of their longevity as a function of their body weight show that people who live the longest are the ones that have weight in the ranges considered healthy, a body mass index of 18 to 20 to 25 to 8 or something like that. Um, people who are on the really thin side of body weight um, have higher risk of early death and disease and all kinds of other problems. So it's not clear to me that the very clear evidence that we have from animal studies that animals that are starved live longer than those who aren't applies to humans. And I must say being starved is not fun. 
um, the people in the Calorie Restriction Society who have taken on this task and are doing this experiment um, are trying to lose about 10% of their normal body weight, which is quite a bit, but it's not nearly the level of the experiments that were done during the Second World War where they got people to lose 25% of their body weight and those people were starving and miserable. The calorie restriction people are not miserable. Well, Marianne, it was a pleasure having you back on Health Watch today. Oh, my pleasure. We're talking today with Marianne Nessel, the author of Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.